Now, this afternoon, before we look at verses 17 and 18 in detail, I'd like to take the time to look at some other patterns that are here. And uh, since you're experts in finding these patterns, uh, I hope that we'll have some fun uh, digging them out or at least observing them. Because they are patterns artistically formulated by the inspired prophet, uh, this is the inerrant word of God, but that inerrancy carries with it the creativity of the individual author and the craftsmanship of Obadiah, as we have noticed in the past, is quite remarkable and profound. So the inspiration of the Holy Ghost will only enhance that and increase it. So let's uh, bend our minds and our hearts and our amazing understanding to some of that craftsmanship, that marvelous, divinely inspired artistry. All right, now we begin with a pattern that we have observed before, and perhaps you can guess what the answer to the question mark pattern is as you see the kind of outline that follows on your sheet. Can anybody fill in the word that would go into that uh, line opposite the word pattern? Concatenation. Very good. That's the word we're looking for. So we want to look at the concatenation paradigm again as it proceeds through this section that we're working on, namely the end of the book. And we begin again with verse 15. And I'll give you the first word because it's tied to the previous four verses, the word day, and then the phrase that is repeated in verse 16. And as you look at your text, or perhaps remember what we have said about this, uh, what is the concatenated or the hooked element that succeeds, that's duplicated in verse 15, and then duplicated in verse 16, or sub-duplicated in verse 15 and 16. All the nations. Very good. So he hooks verse 16 to verse 17 by the concatenation of all the nations. Then in verse 16, he adds a word that he will also concatenate in verse 17. What is that word? The word holy, very good. So holy occurs at the end of verse 16 and also reoccurs in verse 17. So he crochets together 16 and 17 by the word holy. Then in 17 adds a word that will reappear in verse 18, a word that will concatenate those two verses. And what word is that? Jacob, yes, the phrase house of Jacob, but the word Jacob is what is prominent because of the personal name. So Jacob in verse 17 and then crocheted or hooked together in verse 18. Now in 18, 
he adds again a word which will reappear in verse 19. Notice these consecutive concatenations, consecutive crocheting or knitting together of one verse with the verse that precedes, a succeeding verse with the verse that precedes it. He's weaving out his tapestry, you see, with this device. So in verse 18, a word which appears there, which is also repeated in verse 19. I think I heard it. Esau, the word Esau, very good. So Esau is crocheted between 18 and 19. And then in 19, a word that will reappear in verse 20. And he ceases his concatenation with verse 20, even though there are 21 verses in the book. But let's identify that uh, final word of concatenation a parallel term in 19 and 20. Negev? Mm, okay. Emphasizing what's happening. Art, you're nodding your head. Possess, the word possess. And then he stops. In verse 20, there is no word which is duplicated in verse 21. And so we pause to think about the paradigm. Yes, he's an artistic craftsman. He has done this before in this book. He had a concatenation paradigm between verses 7 and 11. And here he picks it up again in verses 15 to 20. He does not have it in verses 1 to 6. He does not have it in verse 21. We've already suggested why he doesn't concatenate verses 1 to 6. He uses direct parallelism there. But here he returns to a pattern he had used in verses 7 to 11. I want to come back to comment on why he does that, but I'm going to hold off for a moment as we ponder why verse 21 is outside of the concatenation pattern. If he stops before he finishes, he does so for a reason. If he does not carry on this very artistically and repetitive weaving of his tapestry, his visionary tapestry. If he doesn't carry it on beyond verse 20, he does so for a reason. Does it have to do with the singular nature of verse 21? Does it have to do with the unique force and emphasis of verse 21. Does it therefore set verse 21 off from this concatenation pattern and in fact set verse 21 off from the entire book with the exception of how verse 21 repeats some of verse 1. Now it's a long time ago when we talked about this, but uh, we observe it once again And when we talk about verse 21 in detail later on, not today, 
but when we finish up our study, I will actually give to you an article I have written on why verse 1 and 21 are a kind of opening and closing symmetry of the whole book of Obadiah. But that will give you something to look forward to be my Christmas present to you. But at any rate, um, 21 stands outside as a unique verse element, a unique part of his tapestry, which he is painting in his visionary images. So that's one reason why 21 does not participate in the rest of the concatenation. He, he, he breaks it out of his pattern in order to make it stand out to your attention, to his hearer's attention. Remembering that this book would have been recited. His hearers would have heard a difference. They would have heard no duplication in verse 21 from verse 20, and they would immediately have been struck by it. Aha! He stopped doing what we have been hearing for some five verses. He stopped it, and now we hear something different. Remember, they didn't have copies of the Bible like you have today. They heard it delivered. They heard it read. They heard it with their ears. And that brought them to attention. They were trained to do it, trained to listen. Okay, So they would hear the concatenation. But in verse 21, they would not hear it. And they would immediately be struck. Aha! That last verse. A different verse. Something different. Something new there. All right. Now, I'm borrowing from what I regard as probably the best commentary overall on this book from a very uh, conservative Lutheran, Paul Robb, and in a surprising anchor Bible commentary series, which is extremely liberal, in fact, sometimes radically liberal. So I I don't know how Paul was uh, drafted to do it, but I'm, I'm glad he was because the Anchor Bible series is very popular. So he's getting his own high view of Scripture, his high view of Christ, his high view of the doctrine of grace, even out of his Lutheran background. But nonetheless, he's getting that into print in a series which is very popular with liberals and conservatives alike. So I'm borrowing from him on this next outline, which is a suggested chiasm, which he records on page 253 of his commentary on Obadiah. All right, now, what is he looking at? Now, I'm going to give you the first verse, 17, which would be the A letter, and I'm going to give you the last verse, A prime, which is also 21 in the book, and I'm going to ask you to look for the elements of the chiasm. So, as you look at verse 17... And you look at verse 21. What do you find is exactly the same? Remember, in a genuine chiasm, we have parallel elements which are exactly the same in the original text. Mount Zion. Zion, Very good. So, Mount Zion is the A and A prime. Or could be translated on Mount Zion. Either one acceptable. All right, so there's the A and A prime part of the chiasm. Verse 17 also contains the B 
element which appears or reappears in verses 19 and 20. So, comparing verse 17 with verses 19 and 20, what element do you see which duplicates itself? What word? Possess. Possess. In fact, it occurs several times in 19 and 20. So, the B and B prime part of our chiasm is the word possess, which means that the pivot or the hinge point of the chiasm is in verse 18. What's verse 18 focusing on? Fire. True. Fire of who? But who's fire? The Lord's fire. Mm, not there. What does it say? The house of yes, and the house of, house of Joseph and Jacob. <clears throat> All right, now, why is this the hinge point of the chiasm? <clears throat> Bob commented about burning up the house of Esau, which is true. It is there in verse 18. But what happens to the house of Jacob and Joseph? Are they burnt up? No, they are surviving in this part of the prophetic work. They survive by and through the last line in verse 18. They survive by the word of the Lord. So here is the center point of the chiasm, which folds together verses 17 to 21 not in a concatenation paradigm, but in a chiastic paradigm. In other words, there's another way to look at the structure of these last five verses. And it puts Jacob and Joseph at the center, at the center of something that's happening to them, which is not going to happen to Esau. They are going to survive. Esau is not going to survive. They are going to be restored. Edom is not going to be restored. They are going to be saved. Esau is not going to be saved. They are going to be loved of God. Esau is going to be hated of God. The focus here in the chiastic structure, if this be valid, and I think it is, that's suggestive, uh, Rob's uh, chiasm is suggestive, is suggestive of the pivot point in the drama. Namely, the pivot point which sets Jacob, Joseph aside or apart from Edom, Esau. Yes, Mark. Normally it comes like this. And here you're saying the B part 19 and 20 and then 18 is after that? Uh, well, a chiasm is list, listing the elements in the order in which they could usually A, B, C, D, E, B, D prime, C prime, B prime, A prime. And uh, uh, I don't understand what you're missing. This is what we've got. We've got an A, B, C, and at a B prime, A prime, with the C being the center of the cut. The hinge is the C element. Okay, so it doesn't so matter. Um, you have... The A, you have verse 17, 
Yes. The B you had verse 19. No, the B verse 17 again. Verse 17 C actually. Any other question? I mean, was I confusing you there? I'm sorry if I did. Okay. (laughs) Thank you for the vote of confidence. All right. Now, uh, the next pattern to note is the use of the verb to be, particularly in the future tense. And I'll begin with verse 16. Because I want to do this as literally as the Hebrew does it. I actually did this last time, but you may not recall what I said about that. The New American Standard reads with the last line of verse 16, become as if they had never existed. This is, of course, referring to the nation of Edom, descendants of Esau. Literally, The Hebrew here uses the verb to be, and it uses the verb to be twice in this line. So what is the literal translation? Well, something like this. They will be as though they have not been. Well, they will be as though they not be. That's a little awkward in English grammar, but nonetheless, that's one way to literally render the Hebrew text. The emphasis here is upon the opposition between be and not be in verse 16, referring to Esau, Edom. All right, now in verse 17. Where do you observe the verb to be and how many times you observe it? It's fine. Is Is that the only occurrence? No, twice. Twice. Shall be or will be. Okay. And who is going to be in verse 17? Those that are speaking. Who are of the house of, the house of Jacob. All right. So the contrast there. Okay. Here's the will be, the will be. <clears throat> it's not the will be that will not be. Okay. This is the will be that will be. The house of Jacob will be. Verse 18. How many will-be's do we have there? Uh, actually, the you may see the one in the third line as italicized, so it's not actually in the Hebrew text. So here I'm, I'm counting uh, ones that are in the Hebrew text Every time you see italicized in your English translation, that means it's not in the original text. It's been put in for easy reading. Generally speaking, it's a, it's a, it's a proper deduction, but it's not literally in the original t- language because the original language doesn't need it. <laughs> How many will be's do you see in 18 then? Two. Two. Okay, the first one. Who will be? Jacob Joseph will be, okay? Second one, who will be or will they be? They will not be. And who is that? The house of Esau. So here we have a contrast between the two. In fact, we've had a contrast 
at each point. But a contrast in verse 16 between Esau, who will be as if he did not be, and verse 17, house of Jacob will be because he will be. And now in verse 18, a uh, emphatic contrast between Jacob, who will be, and Esau, who will not be. It's a very artistic use of the verb to be in Hebrew. It will jump right out of you from at you from the Hebrew text as you watch him use it. But he's not done. The last verse of the book. What do you find there with the verb to be? The kingdom of the Lord will be. Now we've stepped outside of the realm of redemptive history, outside the realm of even the cosmos. We've stopped, we've stepped into the kingdom of the Lord's that will be. He stuns you with that. He's been talking about what will be on the line of history. And all of a sudden in verse 21, he moves out of the line of history with the very same repeated verb to be. Yes, Art. Which is the better translation of that last line of verse 21? Is it, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's? Or is it, the kingdom of the Lord shall be? No, it is the, it's la olam, or la Yahweh, rather. So it's the preposition to or for the Yahweh, the Lord. Okay, so the proper translation is the translation of the New American Standard. And the kingdom will be the Lord's, meaning will be to the Lord. So we would say the Lord's possessive, but it's a prepositional phrase that belongs to him. It is his kingdom. So in other words, you're saying, just repeat what you said, the word kingdom and the word the Lord's is separated by shall be. Yes. Do they have like genitive case there? Does that, the Hebrew work like that? Case doesn't work that way in, in Hebrew. Case, what we call case is determined by position in the Hebrew line or the Hebrew stanza. Yes, go ahead, Art. Yes, there is, you, you get the sense of a possessive when you have this love preposition, meaning belonging to, okay? So in English, we, we, we could translate that of. But the love preposition in Hebrew has lots of different meanings depending upon context and, and use. It's like, it's like many foreign languages. They have nuances which give you multiple synonyms or words for translating the same word, particularly prepositions. For instance, the Hebrew base that I mentioned a little bit ago with a house, that can be translated in, on, Upon, unto, it depends on the force or the context. You're welcome. All right, now, since we finished with to be or not to be here, let's go on to verse 17, which has the vav or the vowel. And you see the Hebrew letter there, the vav clauses or the vowel clause is a but and clause. It's a conjunction. It's usually placed at the beginning of a word so that you say it before you translate the word that's attached to it. So I want to look for vav clauses 
in verse 17. So looking at verse 17, remembering, as you can see from your outline, that that Hebrew letter or that Hebrew word, it's actually a word, even though it's also a letter, <coughs> consonant of the Hebrew alphabet, <coughs> It can be translated and or but. It can sometimes be translated now. There's a variety of translations for the Vav that inaugurates a clause in Hebrew. So where do you see them? But on Mount Zion is the first one. You could also have translated it and Mount Zion. But the New American Standard uses the adversative conjunction, but, rather than consecutive conjunction, and, because it's emphasizing the contrast which now has appeared in the text and in the, in the emphasis of the prophet. It was a proper translation because it's taking account of the context. <clears throat> in fact, I would call the dramatic theological context here. So, <clears throat> but either one would be acceptable. <clears throat> okay, so we have, but, Mount But and or and Mount Zion. <clears throat> All right. Now we're going to fill in that blank a little later when we get everything in, in <clears throat> on on the lines. All right. What else do you see? Where else do you see the valve clause? And, holy. and it will be okay. Holy. Okay. We'll just say and holy is fine. Thank you, Dick. <clears throat> and where else? And the house of Jacob. All right now, notice that I've arranged those phrases, those clauses. There are three clauses in this verse. Notice I've arranged them as a what? Slightly, okay. It could be. What else? It's an Oreo cookie. It's a sandwich. I've arranged them as a sandwich. Okay, now why have I done that? Well, ultimately, I think because Obadiah is doing this, but let's let's discern the method to my own madness, if madness it be. <clears throat> I didn't fill in the parenthesis after each one. Okay, so <clears throat> in the first, but Mount Zion. What is Mount Zion? It is a it is a place. It is a location. Okay, it is a location. <clears throat> now. What is the house of Jacob, the last or the bottom line? Jacob is a, I want it to rhyme with location. Nation, okay. What else? Let's personalize it. Uh, you're warm, but you're not hot. All right, you're trying to pick my brain. Population. Population. <clears throat> okay, so he, he features the location of Zion. He features the population of that location, the house of Jacob. What does he sandwich in between? It has to rhyme with location and population. Sanctification. Very good, very good. <clears throat> All right, now, that's my own little, shall we say, uh, rhetorical pattern. But he does feature holiness at the center of this verse. 
because he's featuring the transformation that's going to occur in the restored Israel or house of Jacob, the Israel or Jacob of God's blessing. All right, so it's there. Whether my little labels are particularly accurate, but the holiness is central to the location and the people in that location. And I want to expand on that later on, but I think this is intentional. Obadiah is putting sanctification at the center of the nation and at the center of the nation's population. All right, which leads to the last of these suggestive patterns, verse 18. where we're looking for parallels in that 18th verse. So as you scan the verse, what parallels do you identify? What's the first one? Yes, very good. And the first one is the house of, okay? And then the house of, those are your first two, okay? Now, the next, house of Esau, Esau, how many times, Bob? Twice Twice over, yes. So, verse 18 includes the house of Esau, twice, as it includes the house of Jacob, Joseph, twice, and also has what verb? We've already talked about this. Yes, the verb to be, will be. All right, now, what house will be? The house of Jacob, Joseph will be. So that's your bottom blank line under house of Joseph, Jacob. It lines up with it. We actually could have put it up above because it occurs before the end of the verse. But nonetheless, I wanted to set it out this way so that you see it more clearly. And what's the destiny of the house of Esau? It will, well, what, what we want to do it in terms of the verb to be, it will, it will not be. Yes, it will not be. So the contrast there, which is the reason I put them at the bottom, see? The house of Jacob, Joseph will be, bottom left. The house of Esau will not be, bottom right. Alright, you step back from this little exercise, and you say, well, that was interesting. But if it's interesting, it is also intentionally interesting. It's to draw you into more than what is merely interesting, merely looks like nice parallel or symmetrical outlines. It's to draw you into what is interesting in the revelation of God through this section. So now, we want to go back and we want to tear apart 17 and 18 in terms of the theological theme that is interesting here by this structure which draws our attention to the interesting elements. All right, so with a little bit of repetition, we have observed the concatenation which knits or hooks or crochets the word holy in verse 17 to one verse and the other. A holy mountain. 
a holy city, Zion, a holy nation, Jacob. The name Jacob then will concatenate with verse 17 and 18, emphasizing the shift in focus of Obadiah's visionary oracle. That is what is the key to this concatenation unit. That is what sets this concatenated section apart from the previous concatenation section in verses 7 to 11. Our tapestry now contains panels depicting the beloved Jacob, not the despised Esau. Yes, Esau is a character in this, but the emphasis is upon what is happening to the house of Jacob, house of Joseph. This is the drama of restoration. This is the drama of remnant renovation. This is the drama of God's grace, his electing grace in action, and that's the reason we have a shift here. Obadiah's prophetic, visionary images shift from what's happening to Esau in verses 7 to 11 in a downward spiral to what is now happening to Jacob in verses 17 to 21 in an upward spiral. And now you see why he has used two concatenated paradigms. 7 to 11, the descending spiral of the humiliation of Esau. Verses 17 or 16 to 20, the ascending pattern of exaltation and restoration for Jacob. And he has arranged both of them around that center, verses 11 to 15, verses 12 to 15, the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord. That is what brings about this eschatological shift. But please note, his panels are now changed from the history of Esau to the history of Jacob at verse 17. He's weaving his tapestry panels with images from the future of the house of Jacob, the eschatological future of the house of Jacob Joseph. The shift now portrays life, not death. The shift portrays life in a new day for Jacob Israel. Not a day of judgment and destruction, but a new day. A day of sanctification and renovation. When Jacob is set apart, Jacob is set apart from sin and destruction and crowned with holiness, separated, consecrated unto the Lord in an arena of blessed possession. Ernst Wendland, who's another favorite Lutheran of mine, Ernst Wendland has written on this section, the shift in tone, the shift in tone in Obadiah's words, the shift in tone is nothing less 
Then the portrait, notice, the portrait. This is the tapestry panel. This is a picture. This is the images. Portrait of an eternal inheritance. He's absolutely right. Absolutely right. This is a tapestry panel of an eternal, everlasting inheritance. For only an eternal and spiritual Zion can be labeled holy. Only an eternal and spiritual inheritance can be labeled a holy possession. Only an eternal and spiritual house can be labeled a holy nation. The transformation which is projected and pictured here is eschatological. It is the holy reverse of unholy sin and degradation, that which results in destruction. It is the holy reverse by means of the holy grace of God, which results in salvation, escape from judgment, possession of the mountain of the Lord, set apart on high in his glory. If verse 16 ended with the non-existent of the sinful nation and the sinful in those nations reduced to death existence, not life existence. If verse 16 ended with a non-existence, verse 17 is alive with existence, holy existence, Mount Zion existence, existence in possession. Existence in the house of Jacob, this house, this mountain, this possession, this arena of refuge is filled with the Lord as it is filled with the Lord's holiness. It is filled with the Lord as it is filled with the life of the Lord, which he graciously grants. It is filled with the Lord as it is filled with the Lord in perfect possession. The Lord as perfect possession and inheritance. It is filled with the Lord as it is filled with the Lord's seed. His eschatological seed of Jacob. The eschatological son of Jacob who is the eschatological son of Israel and all those from every nation who are sons and daughters of the Lord in him by the adoption of sons and daughters are also by grace through faith the holiness unto the Lord. That is what they are labeled in the book of Revelation. Holiness unto the Lord. No mere horizontalism can satisfy the magnificence of Obadiah's imaginary, visually woven paradigm into the redemptive historical tapestry. No mere horizontalism can do justice to this language. What Zion on earth could ever claim Holy status. What Zion on earth 
could ever claim perfect sanctification. None. It could only point to the holiness which lay beyond itself in the existence of a holy God dwelling in his holy place, namely heaven itself. No mere horizontalism can do justice to this language. What mountain city on earth could ever satisfy the claim of sanctified status? None. It could only point to sanctification which lay beyond itself in the sanctified triune God dwelling in his sanctus sanctorum, his holy of holies. What place of possession for those escaped from the city of destruction could ever claim never to be dispossessed possession? None. Whatever earthly possession received this designation ultimately testified to what lay beyond itself in the eternal house of possession, where the refugees from destruction, the redeemed and saved of the Lord, where they are possessed by the Lord God himself and will never, no, never be dispossessed. He will never dispossess his sons and daughters of himself in that place where he is present with them perfectly, eternally, everlastingly. There is no earthly city of that nature. There is no earthly nation. There is no earthly terra firma of that nature. God is the everlasting possession. God himself is the everlasting land. God himself is the everlasting inheritance and possession. God himself is all in all in there. No earthly manifestation could ever approximate that. That. The reason the apostle says, I have not seen. You can imagine the most glorious thing on this earth and you haven't even come close. Obadiah's language here is pushing you outside of the temporal and the horizontal into the eternal and the eschatological. Do not reduce Obadiah to the line of the horizon of a Jerusalem on the earth and a Zion in Canaan and in Palestine on the globe. Don't do it. You're not understanding what he's doing. You can't justify this language with earthly categories, horizontalism. Temporalism. You can't do it. And the kingdom will be to Yahweh? No earthly manifestation of that kingdom could ever exhaust the meaning of that last line. None. Which is the reason that every attempt to politically establish it on the earth has been a miserable and abject failure. Even when the Calvinists tried to do it. An abject failure. Because that's not what God's kingdom is about. Jesus himself said it. 
my kingdom is not of this world, political, economic, social, global, whatever. It is not that kind of kingdom. Well, obviously here I'm taking pot shots at Kiliasm. You say to me, what's Kiliasm? Kiliasm is based or derived from the Greek word in the book of Revelation for a thousand years. Revelation 20. And there are two major groups of Kiliasts in modern day Christianity. There are premillennial dispensational Kiliasts. And there are premillennial historicalist Kiliasts, or more popularly, pre-trib and post-trib premillennialists. Many of them are wonderful Christians. I am not assaulting their Christian faith or the reality of the grace of God at work in their lives and hearts. But what I am doing is suggesting that that horizontalism that horizontalism of dispensational premillennial or horizontalism of historical premillennial, the pre-trib being the wish we'd all been ready, Jesus freak type of dispensationalism or the left behind series of 21st century dispensationalism and the post-trib being the classic or historical form of premillennialism that even some of the early church fathers embraced and has been embraced even by uh, thoroughgoing Calvinists from time to time, much to, my, much to my dismay. But nonetheless, please understand that I am not here attacking their Christian faith. What I am attacking is their proper understanding of the inspired word of God. That horizontalism cannot do justice to Obadiah's language. The eschatological nature of Obadiah's language, image, vision, tapestry, cannot be reduced to a Jerusalem in a thousand years, a Mount Zion in a thousand years, a Zion temple in a thousand years. It cannot be reduced to that. His Language is not horizontal. It is vertical. Not the plain of Israel on the earth, Jerusalem below, or another temple like Solomon's or Herod's, but the glory of the people of God in a holy city forever with their holy God forever, not needing any temple forever. That's the vision of Obadiah as demonstrated in the proclamation of the kingdom of heaven by the Lord Jesus himself and portrayed an unfolding tapestry by the apocalypse of the apostle John. Jesus is not establishing a horizontalism of the kingdom of God. If he is, give it up and become part of the social activist movement, the social justice movement that permeating the church, the social gospel movement that permeated the church at the turn of the 20th century. Give it up. Give up Jesus' idea and reinterpret it, re-image it in a reductionist paradigm so you make your church an economic power, social power, political power. That's what the liberals do. 
not what Jesus came to do. And because they refuse to accept the Jesus who is talking about it, they must reinterpret him in their own image. They must make him a social justice warrior. They must make him an advocate of Walter Rauschenbusch's social gospel. They must make him a social activist of the Angela Davis variety of the 70s. That is a prostitution of the gospel of the kingdom of heaven. But it dominates. It dominates the Christian world. Beware. Beware that it does not begin to dominate your Christian world. Beware. You have been warned. Not just by Obadiah, but by me. All right. Yes, Ray. Are you saying that it would be wrong to uh, interpret the Mount of Olives sermon and or revelations in any kind of linear historical fashion? Yes. That's what I'm saying. Never, never fits in either one of those in any way, no. shape, or form. That's not what he said. So you cannot put what Jesus says and or what John says in Revelation, you can't put it into a historical context. No, because it's possible it's tra- to do. No, because it's trans-historical, particularly the book of Revelation. It's trans-historical. Right, okay. I, I'm, I'm not agreeing or disagreeing. I'm just trying to get my little mind around it, which is... No, no I agree. It's a whole... <clears throat> if you've been raised like I was to try to think how you could fit... All those visions of revelation into a historical paradigm, mostly future historical paradigm, and you're frustrated, and then you discover what William Hendrickson does when he, in his commentary, More Than Cockers, he begins to say, this is trans-historical. He said, I've found the golden mean. I finally find the answer, the key to the book of Revelation. Well, then it becomes totally abstract and meaningless. No, it becomes very concrete and meaningful because it's symbolic imagery of a trans-historical domain and rich tradition and rich arena. It's the arena of a city of God which is described as golden and four-square, which is more glorious than any golden four-square city you can imagine. It's the only way the images can portray the glorious beauty of it. Then when Jesus says, lift up your heads for the time is near, how, how do I put that into my world? Or is it even there? Or is it there all the time? It's there all the time. Yes. The nearness of the end is as close as the next event, namely the coming of the Son of Man in glory. We will possibly experience some of the great tribulation, or is there a great tribulation? <clears throat> I believe that particularly Second, Thess- Second Thessalonians two suggests a tribulation for the church, not necessarily the Book of Revelation per se. <clears throat> I believe that uh, the persecution of Christians is going to get worse as the end approaches. Jesus is serious. When the Son of Man returns, shall he find faith on the earth. But in every era in which the church has been persecuted, that has been a question which has arisen. Are we in the time of the tribulation near the end? And for 2,000 years we have not been, which doesn't mean that we may not be. But I don't know that there's any signal yet that we are. 
And how would I read the signals? I don't know. I'm agnostic on that point. So you think that Christians may experience a great tribulation before they're raptured, part of it, or whatever? Or, or, so, or you There may be a persecution of the church before Jesus returns to raise the dead and to take the living to himself. Yeah. The rapture in that sense. Yeah. Yes. <clears throat> but what signs there will be, I don't know. Because when you begin to look at Christian martyrdom in, in the last 2,000 years, there are eras in which bloody persecution has virtually decimated the church. Nothing that we have even begun to experience here. Not even what's going on in, in our world. Though there is, I'm not denying that there is ruthless persecution going on in our world. But... But some of what went on in the Middle Ages and in the and in the Roman Empire against Christians is worse than what we're seeing here. So my my point is, how do I measure that element of tribulation? How do I measure the man of sin or the man of lawlessness in Second Thessalonians two? I'm agnostic. I don't I don't know. I know I know it's coming. I know it's there, but I don't know how I'll recognize it or when over it. When I, I might even want, I won't even be alive when it comes, perhaps. But that's what we look for. That's what Jesus commands us to do. We yes. see these things lift up your head. Yes. You know. Yes. I, I agree with that. But when I when I think about when I see them, though I'm seeing them at this time. In other words, is this the time of that final end? That that I don't that I don't know how to judge. Myself for looking for them, you know. That's sometimes I feel like I'm an idiot for trying to do it because it's all abstracting in the never never land of this abstract is, theology. Yeah, right? but this you do look for. This you pray virtually daily, even so, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Correct? Your, your focus is upon the Lord Jesus, not so much upon whether or not you can determine the tribulation itself. But you are anxious. You long for the return of Christ. All right. All right. We'll, we'll take our break here. Verse 18 continues to unroll the contrast between the house of Jacob and the house of Esau. Well, the people of God in contrast to the people of Edom. Now that phrase, house of Esau, which appears here, is peculiar to Obadiah and appears nowhere else in the Bible. <clears throat> in fact, Obadiah's fourfold repetition of the Hebrew word beth or house places the emphasis in his tapestry on the national destiny respectively. You will notice that he uses house two times for each group as we have outlined twice for Jacob Joseph, twice for Esau. The double symmetry underscores the distinct and opposite destiny. But why does he use the phrase house of Joseph? This phrase is unique to this verse in Obadiah's corpus, but it is found elsewhere in the Old Testament. <clears throat> And keep your finger there in Obadiah and turn back to the previous book to Amos chapter 5, verse 6, where Amos says, Seek the Lord that you may live, 
lest he break forth like a fire. It's interesting that God break forth like a fire in Amos 5. Lest he break forth like a house of fire, O house of Joseph. So there's the use of the phrase in Amos. And if you ask yourself, well, to whom is Amos prophesying, turn back further in Amos to chapter 1, verse 1. The words of Amos was among the sheep herders from Tekoa, which he envisioned in visions. Here's another visionary prophet. Amos has got a lot more pictures than Obadiah does, but he's a visionary. Concerning what nation? Israel. In the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, in the days of Jeroboam, son of Joash, king of Israel, this is Jeroboam II, of course, two years before the earthquake. Two years before what earthquake? Well, archaeologists have discovered a destruction layer which they date to about the mid-7th, 8th century B.C., around 760 B.C., at Hatzor in northern Israel. And they argue that this is evidence of that earthquake, which Amos mentions. And if you keep your finger now in Obadiah and and lose your place in Amos, we don't need that anymore. Turn ahead to the book of Zechariah just for a moment to notice another interesting statement in Zechariah 14, verse 5. You will flee by the valley of my mountains, for the valley of the mountains will reach to Abzal. Yes, you will flee just as you fled before the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. So there's Zechariah, hundreds of years later, referring to the same event as Amos does in verse 1 of the opening of his book, so that we can date the book of Amos from that uh, notation in chapter 1, sometime after about 760 B.C., perhaps, And Zechariah, even 200 years later, is referring to the same event. All right, so the house of uh, Joseph refers to the nation of Israel, or the northern kingdom, the kingdom of Jeroboam II, according to Amos 1, verse 1, at certain points in the Old Testament. If the house of Joseph refers to the northern kingdom in Obadiah 18, then what does house of Jacob refer to? House of Joseph is the northern kingdom. What's house of Jacob? Southern kingdom, yes. We return to the book of Zechariah, chapter 10 this time, verse 1, or verse 6, I'm sorry. Chapter 10, verse 6 of Zechariah. I will strengthen the house of Judah. I shall save the house of Joseph, and I shall bring them back, because I have had compassion on them. They will be as though I had not rejected them, for I am the Lord, and I will answer them. This is the uh, version of the restoration, or the return of the people of God, according to the prophet Zechariah. So I am going to suggest that the label house of Jacob and Joseph here is a reference to the double kingdoms of the people of God, Israel and Judah, and that they are joined here by a common motif. Fire and flame indicates a reunited Israel and Judah, as Zechariah 10.6 suggests. 
we are talking here about the remnant motif. That is, the remnant of Israel and the remnant of Judah reunited as the redeemed people of God. In other words, the remnant according to the election of grace, as Paul describes them, the elect new Israel of God of the end of the age. And that brings us to the crooks or the hard challenge of this verse. What does fire and flame mean here, where we have already determined separate destinies are prophesied? The fire that consumes Esau, Edom, is a destruction fire. It leaves no survivor. Is the fire of Jacob, Joseph, Indicative of the opposite, that is, the flaming rebirth or reunion of remnant Israel-Judah. In other words, the fire of destruction for Esau is the antithesis of the flame of restoration for Jacob. Now, I admit, I acknowledge, I confess this would be a very strange way of using the image of fire and flame. But recall that even we use fire imagery to illumine, to support life, even to promote a warm and cozy atmosphere. I still miss my fireplace. And you can think of fire as forging, which is another. United. Good. Don't Peter and Proverbs use the same imagery, being cleansed or sanctified through fire, or as it were? Yes. Uh, you're all picking out parts of the imagery, even from Scripture, uh, which would uh, support what I'm doing here. <clears throat> so uh, let's let's think about that. Is this flame in verse 18 the veritable lamp of Israel? Restored and re-imaged as the people of God, God who himself is a flaming fire. Yes. Now, maybe you're not thinking at this point, but I'm sure some people would think, Denison, you've lost your mind. You've lost your mind in symbolism. Yes. <laughs> Denison, look at the next two verses, 19 and 20. They're speaking of the restored people of God occupying or taking back the land of Palestine, which was occupied by Edomites, Canaanites, Philistines, and others after the Babylonian captivity in 586 B.C. Surely, Denison, the fire of Jacob and the flame of Joseph are literal torches applied to the enemies of the people of God, because of their encroachment on the possession of Israel, Judah, after the destruction of Jerusalem. After all, the fire that consumes Esau was literal fire, literal flame from torches of Babylonian invaders. By symmetry of expression, surely the fire of Jacob, Joseph, is literal flame used in repossessing territory seized by those enemy nations who oppressed, exiled, and destroyed them. We remind ourselves of verse 15 once once again. As you did, so it will be done to you with real fire. 
Now, I have to acknowledge the apparent force of that argument. It is based on the symmetry of language. But that's the problem with it. In my opinion, that's the problem with it. The parallel use of fire occurs in a symmetry of contrast, not a symmetry of sameness. The destiny of Jacob Joseph is not parallel to the destiny of Edom Esau, as we have already indicated in our comments on verses 16 and 17. Edom Esau will be after God's judgment as if they never existed, verse 16. But Jacob Joseph of Mount Zion will be populated by those who escape the judgment, verse 17. Edom Esau will be dispossessed of their land, a nation. No survivor will exist. Jacob Joseph will possess their possessions, either Edomite territory, as verse 19 and 20 suggest, or Israel Judah territory. The possessive pronoun there is ambiguous and perhaps intentionally so there. In other words, the contrastive element, the contrastive juxtaposition of the future of Edom Esau and the future of Jacob Joseph requires a juxtaposition, in fact, an antithetical, antithetical disjunction between the death and obliteration of one and the life and restoration of the other. That's my point. That the use of imagery and symbolism here is absolutely justified from the imagery of the contrast. The contrast between the destructive flame of death and the other and the flame here of a renewed life for the other. Survival, not death and destruction. This portion of Obadiah is a prophecy of the eschatological future of Joseph Judah after their destruction in 586 B.C. He's not thinking about that day of destruction anymore for them by the Babylonians. He's looking to a new day. He's looking to an eschatological new of flame of vibrance and vitality, etc. Almost like the flame of the glory of God at his throne in heaven, the fiery radiance of that glory. Go ahead, Randy. I'm going to just try to simplify what you just said. We all go through the fire, some come out, some don't. Now... Is that a fair simplification? When you're saying we all go through the fire. Everybody goes through the fire, but some escape and some don't. What God fire? uses the fire to, to purify somebody and uses the, uses the fire to destroy uh, the you, You're talking about the symbolic fire of tribulation or persecution or... or Existence in general, let's say. Okay. okay. All right. Existential wants. Okay. Fine, fine. Yes, Kierkegaard, if you want, that's all right. Actually, I'm, I'm, I'm quoting Heidegger. <laughs> but go ahead, Ben. Well, since since these uh, first eighteen deals with judgments upon Esau, I, I was uh, connecting it with Corinthians uh, uh, chapter six, verse two, where says, "Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world?" And if the world is judged by you, are you not competent to constitute the smallest law courts? In other words, we together, this Christ will judge the nations. And I was wondering whether this fire of Joseph and Jacob isn't a judgment thing. That's an interesting suggestion, Ben. Uh, That uh, 
we obviously are going to be present at the fire of damnation as it's poured out upon those that are on the left-hand side of the Son of Man at the judgment seat. <clears throat> I mean, we're going to have observers in that. Um, I, 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 I can't say that it's impossible, but in terms of the contrast here, the contrastive language here, <clears throat> I'm bound by the context to say something that's related specifically to the contrast between Edom and, and uh, Judah. <clears throat> so that's the reason that I'm grappling for <clears throat> language which would image that in, their, <clears throat> in the distinction. In other words, the, the flame of not destruction, but the flame of, shall we say, a re- rejuvenation, a renewal. <clears throat> Much like Randy's saying, like the flame of purification and sanctification. I'm drawn that way simply because of the context of the verse. But I admit the possibility of what you're suggesting. It's interesting. I hadn't thought about it, but it is an interesting possibility. Okay. I conclude that fire of Jacob and flame of Joseph are metaphorical or figurative of the ongoing light and heat which will characterize Israel, Judah, as well as the glory reflected in flame and fire, which identifies them with the light and intensity of the flaming glory of God. Did not God himself, in his glory commission to Moses, out of the fiery burning bush display himself as a consuming fire? Did not God go before the children of Israel at the Exodus in a pillar of fire, Did not the Lord God come down before Jacob, Joseph, in flames of fire at Mount Sinai? And did not God come down in fire at the dedication of Solomon's temple, 2 Chronicles 7? Did not God declare, I will be a wall of fire around Jerusalem and glory in her midst, Zechariah 2.5? All right, this, this language, fire and flame, identified with the glory and intense radiance of the Lord God, seems to me to be the nuance of what Obadiah is picking up here. Jacob, Joseph, Israel, Judah, is here prophetically identified with that divine glory, that radiant divine fire, that flame of exaltation and majesty which characterizes God himself in theophany. In other words, God has shown himself to be that in the pillar of fire, the burning bush, the fire, the, the Solomon's dedication. God has demonstrated that theophonically, and now in this verse, he is drawing Jacob, Joseph, into its imagery. So the context of Obadiah and the redemptive historical context of the law and the prophets supports this figural or symbolic interpretation of fire and flame, in my opinion, an image of identification with the glory manifestation of the Lord God of the house of Jacob and the house of Joseph in eschatological context. I invite you into my flaming presence, you flame of Joseph, you fire of Jacob. But I'm not dogmatic. So Ben's opinion is respectable and perhaps better than mine. It's a, it, it is a challenge. All the commentators throw up their hands. I didn't throw up my hands. I've given you a possibility. But understand, it is my opinion of the meaning of very difficult 
image. Any questions about verses 17 or 18? Any questions about the outline? Any any answers that you didn't get or any places you didn't get filled in and you want me to help you out there? Yes, Ben? A question when you're looking at Amos, I think it was, where Joseph and Jacob appeared. Yes, that is correct. Because both Hosea and Amos will often use the name Ephraim for the northern kingdom. They won't call it Israel, they will call it Ephraim. Very good observation, connecting, of course, the sons of Joseph, Ephraim and Manasseh. Joseph, of course, bonds with the southern kingdom or the northern? Northern kingdom, according to Amos 1. It's the, it's the reunion of the people of God motif, which is typical of all the prophets. And here it is in Obadiah as well as other Old Testament prophets. God's going to bring back his people. He's going to reunite Israel and Judah. <clears throat> yes? Why is the kingdom of the north identified by those names, Joseph, Ephraim, Judah, I think probably uh, because of what you suggested. Namely, Ephraim is one of Joseph's children. <clears throat> and so that name, along with Manasseh, his brother, <clears throat> as part of the inheritance of the northern kingdom, or an inheritance of that part of the northern kingdom, which Jeroboam took at the break with, with Rehoboam in 930 B.C. So it, it's, <clears throat> it's identified with that the descendants of Joseph occupying that region why it uses Joseph and not Issachar or Dan or something else, um, that I can't answer. It has something to do with the importance of Joseph in the narrative of Israel's history. He's a great honorific. He has a tremendous story. In fact, when you look at it, most of the book of Genesis is about Joseph. Not about Abraham. It's not about Isaac, it's not about Jacob, it's not about Adam. Most of the book of Genesis is about Joseph, chapter 39 to chapter 50. Long chapters. Remarkable, remarkable person. All right, let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for what is clear and obvious. We thank you for what is harder and not quite so obvious. And we thank you most of all for the spirit of illumination which helps your people understand your word even in ways which are different than have been advanced before. So we thank you for the multiplicity of approaches because your word has a multiplicity of answers. We could not exhaust your mind or your word in an eternity. And so we long to meditate upon it forever and ever as the psalmists long to. Lord, we bless you for this part of the prophetic word of God. We bless you for the life that is promised to the people of the kingdom of heaven. We bless you for the Lord Jesus, who is the king and bringer of that kingdom. And we thank you that we can call ourselves sons and daughters, children, of the Heavenly Father, God and Father of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Bless our time, we pray, not only in our word, but in our lives. And bless us in this Thanksgiving season with the joy of the Holy Spirit. That you have poured out a bounty 
of richness in grace and mercy to us who deserve no mercy and no grace. In Jesus' name we thank you. Amen.